open our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. Today we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and with water. By water also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the, the, the destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. This is God's word. So we're going to start a study of 2 Peter. Uh, we'll park here for three weeks. I want to start in chapter 3 for a reason, because Peter gives us the motivation for this second letter. Remember the first letter? We went through 1 Peter. Peter's teaching us how to live righteously in this age. As exiles, we should be good parents, good moms and dads. He's telling us how to be employees. He's laying all this out for us. He gets to the second letter, and he says, I want to stir up your minds. Uh, really, as a coach, Peter's saying, I want to fire you guys up. I want to tell you guys about something very near and dear to my heart, very true about what we're all experiencing. Now, he's writing to churches in Asia Minor, Gentile churches that are under heavy persecution by the Roman Empire. They're outmanned, outgunned, uh, they're being maligned, even to the point of death. And Peter comes along and he says, guys, can I fire you up about something? And this fisherman from Galilee is going to tell them about the future of planet Earth. You know, the Bible says God doesn't call many wise, many noble. He chooses the base things of this world. Why? To confound the wise. So we're going to look at a fisherman today telling us the future of our planet. And what Peter tells us is, in verse 10, the day of the Lord is coming. He doesn't say it might come or maybe it'll come. He says the day of the Lord is coming. And he says, I want to remind you of this. I want to stir you up by reminder. Now, here's what I like about that. He doesn't say, hey, I want to tell you something new. I want to tell you this new revelation I figured out. You know, I put some things together, and man, I'm going to tell you something nobody's told you, and you're going to be fired up. 
He said, I want to remind you what the Old Testament said, what the prophets talked about, what Jesus said, what Paul said, what I've said. Uh, there's an old adage, it might help you guys, that if something's true, it's not new, and if it's new, it's probably not true, okay? So save yourself a lot of money buying all these new books about new revelations. Jude said what you and I believe was once and for all handed to the saints. What we believe has been the same for 2,000 years. And Peter comes along and says, look, I want to fire up believers, whoever read this letter, about something you can take to the bank, and it's this. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. He talks about the day of the Lord. Every Jew in the first century, when they heard the day of the Lord, they knew exactly what he was talking about. It's the most documented time in your entire Bible. In the Old Testament, it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called Daniel's 70th week. It's written by all the major prophets and even the minor prophets, specifically Joel, which Peter will quote. Think about Daniel chapter 9. He's taken captive to Babylon Babylon as a 16-year-old boy. He's wondering why he's there. He rises through the ranks to become prime minister under Nebuchadnezzar and later Darius. And it says in chapter 9 that he's reading Jeremiah, and he figures out, he puts together that the captivity will last 70 years. For 490 years, Israel did not keep the Sabbath. They didn't keep the year of Jubilee. And God said, I will send you the land of idols, and I will punish you there for 70 years. Well, Daniel figures this out by reading Jeremiah, and then he begins to pray, and it's revealed to him that 77s are determined upon Israel and thy holy city. The holy city is Jerusalem, mentioned 881 times in Scripture. It's the place where God said he would put his name, listen, forever. And we just got back from Jerusalem. It's still there, and the promises of God are still true. 77-year periods, Daniel said, would usher in the end or the culmination of the ages uh, as we read our Bibles and look at world history. Now, you have to understand how the Jews kept time. We look at decades, right? So when I was a kid and I would go to a pool, they would play oldies. The oldies were 50s music, happy days, things like that, right? Now when I go to the pool, oldies music is the 80s. It was the music I grew up with, right? And it's going to happen to all of you. The older you get, oldies will be the, the generation that you live through. Uh, the Jews didn't mark time like that. They looked at, instead of decades, seven-year periods. Why? Well, God created the, the, the earth in seven days. And then every seventh year, they were to let the land lie fallow. Seven of those sevens ushered in a 50-year jubilee. Daniel says 69 of these chunks, or seven years, 483 years, would finish the transgression, make an end of sins, uh, make an uh, end of iniquity, would bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up or finish all vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy. Does everybody know who the most holy is? The Messiah, who we know as Jesus, right? 483 years, 69 of these seven year periods. All Bible prophecy centers around two things and two things only. Israel and the Messiah who would come through Israel, who would bring salvation to the Jews and then to all Gentiles. 69 times 7, 483 years. Now, Sir Robert Anderson has done the work on this. He's from Scotland Yard. I've taught it many times. You can Google it. But he gives us the starting point, Daniel. He says, when the decree comes to rebuild Jerusalem, that's Nehemiah 1 under Artaxerxes the king, 
Um, if you take 483 years, which started in 453 B.C., you come to Palm Sunday, 32 A.D., when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, and they put palm branches down. That's why we have Palm Sunday. And they said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, they were anointing him as the Messiah, the King of Israel. The religious people of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, told, told Jesus' disciples, do not let them say this. It's blasphemy. Jesus said, if they don't say it, the very stones will cry out. Why? Because this was the day of their visitation. And you know the story. Jesus wept over Jerusalem and he said, I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks and comfort you, but you have missed this thy day. This was the day. Now Daniel left off one seven-year period still to happen in human history, and we call that the day of the Lord. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about it in 1 Thessalonians. When he writes to the Thessalonians, he had only been with them for six weeks when he established the church. He writes back and he's, he's just amazed at their faith and how this church has grown. He said, for you declare what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned from God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. Paul comes back to the Thessalonian church. He says, oh my God, you guys have been radically changed. You've, you've served idols, now you're serving the living God. You're serving, you're evangelizing. And you ready for this? And they're waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. The early church lived in, in, in the expectancy that Jesus could come at any time. Uh, Paul would go on and tell the Thessalonians this. They were concerned about people that had died. He said, this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, Paul was thinking he could be in that company, until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have died. Why? The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain. Paul said that could be us, the first century church. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly well, he had taught them, that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. It's unexpected. It's, no one's looking for it. When they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, you're a different crowd. You are not in darkness that this day should not overtake you as a thief, your sons of the light. Therefore, let us not sleep. Let us watch and be slow, sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But we are part of the righteous, and we are waiting for the return of the Lord. And so Paul talked about this day. Jesus talked about this day. This is one of the last scriptures. I'll read you Matthew 24. He said, Then there will be great tribulation, such as the world has never seen since the beginning of the time, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, don't believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders to deceive even if it was possible the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. 
There if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, don't believe them, or look, he's in the inner room, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The day of the Lord will usher in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And he said there will be tribulation in that time and that if it were possible, if God didn't stop it, no flesh would survive. Until nuclear war, this could have never happened. There was never a time in human history where we could wipe ourselves off the face of the planet. Analysts tell us today, and I don't know if this is true, that if we fired every nuclear rocket and detonated every warhead in every arsenal in the world, we would reverse the axis of the planet. That's how much nuclear power there is. So the day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church. There's three and a half years of peace where an antichrist will arise, a man of peace, a false prophet, probably solve the Middle East dilemma, solve the dilemmas of the world, usher in peace, and then three and a half years, listen, not of the wrath of man, but the wrath of God. A third of the earth will be burned, a third of the seas will turn to blood, a third of mankind will die, and it will lead us to the greatest doctrine and hopefully the blessed hope of your heart, the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ is the greatest doctrine of the church. If you carry a Bible, if you were here on Easter, you know this is the lifeblood of what we believe. If Jesus rose from the dead, he must be coming again. Now, the problem is, Peter says, scoffers will come in the last days, verse three, and they'll say, where is the promise of his king coming? These are mockers, scoffers, skeptics. It's been 2,000 years, are you guys nuts? You really think Jesus is coming? Look, you can look back as far as you can imagine and all things continue as they were. You guys have lost your mind. But I'm telling you, it's what we believe. And we're not, we're not to be ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God on the salvation. If you can believe in the beginning God, then you can believe a fish swallowed a man and you can believe a man got up on Easter Sunday morning and you can believe Jesus is coming again. Why do we study the second coming? Let me give you some reasons. Number one, drum roll, it's in the Bible. One of every four verses in the Bible is prophetic. 352 verses told us about the coming of a Messiah to Israel. They have all been verified. The only prophecies left in your Bible are about the second coming. Now, we taught first Peter, and Peter told us how to live as exiles, and, you know, we need to live lives, we need to raise kids and such. But now we're in second Peter, and he's talking about the second coming, so it's in the Bible, so we talk about it. Another reason we talk about it is because it's a time when the bride will meet the groom. Think about this. Would you just want to date forever and ever? Now, some of you young people, I know that's the way it is today. Guys don't want to commit, right? So that's kind of the way dating's going lately. But you know what it's like to be in love and, and, and you're going out and you want to get married and you're longing for that wedding day? When you met Jesus Christ and you were saved, it was a glorious day, but you were still looking through a glass dimly. And when you open your Bible and you commune with God and you hear the still small voice, it's all wonderful. But the problem is too many times the heavens are like brass. When Jesus comes, you will be fully known and the blessed and the pure in heart will see God. 
And it's a day we should all be longing for. It's a day number three, Romans 9 through 11, when all Israel will be saved. These people that were chosen, not because they were the greatest, because they were the least, who have been scattered all over the world and have gone through pogroms and holocausts, one day will look upon him who they've been pierced. And all Israel will be saved. You know, they're called the chosen people. You know what their prayer is? God, you chose us, now choose someone else. We've had enough of all this. Their day is coming. Number three, it's the only time the rest of prophecies to be filled. Number four, it will be the ultimate joy for all mankind. Can you wrap your minds around every tear will be dried? Every single tear, every heartache will go away. And finally, and I don't think we think about this enough, justice will be served. Justice will be served. See, the problem today is man thinks he's getting away with things. The oppression, the marginalization of people, the rich and the poor, all the things that are done, the lies that are spoken, man shakes his fist at God. They think they're getting away with it. You look at Stalin killing 20 million people and you think, how do you do something like that? And I remember somebody saying, once you believe there's no God, anything's possible. But there's coming a day when Jesus will come and he will tread out the winepress of the wrath of God on a Christ-rejecting world. John Lennox, when he was here and spoke, we went out to lunch and there were several of us there and one of his handlers said, John, why don't you tell Pastor Bob what you used to do before you got real popular with all these debates and all the books you're writing? And he said, Bob, he goes, all I was was a math teacher at Oxford. And I would teach all week, but on the weekends I would go in the Soviet bloc, Eastern Europe, and I would teach pastors and congregations. He said, I did more teaching of the gospel and the Bible on weekends than I did all week at Oxford. And so one week he's going into the, one of these churches to speak to pastors and there's five armed guards, communist guards that meet him. And he said, Mr. Lennox, we know what you've been doing. We're not gonna stop you. We don't mind if you preach the Bible. You can preach about Jesus. You can preach the Old and New Testament. The only thing we ask is do not teach about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Because they were smart enough to know that that's when all the wrongs will be made right. They are smart enough to know this would bring hope to every believer. And Paul come, Peter comes along and he says, look, I want to fire you guys up. Things look bleak now, but the day of the Lord is coming. I know you can't see it. And for some of you, I know you can't see it, but Peter's saying it is coming and it's going to be glorious and it's the great hope of the church. I went out this week and looked at 25 websites of some of the most influential churches in the world. I looked at two years of sermons. I didn't listen to them. I just looked at titles. I found one message on the second coming. The most important doctrine in the Bible, I found one message. And I know why, because, you know, some people have gone overboard with prophecy. And some of the church believes now that, oh my gosh, we don't want to divide people over this. So they have kind of a pan theology now. It's just going to pan out in the end, right? So we don't want to cause confusion. Peter said, this fires the church up. He said, in light of this, what manner of people ought you to be? This produces holy and godly living. Now, I had a front row seat to this when I became a new believer. But the man that led me to Christ asked me if I had ever read the Bible. I said, no. And because we were watching a movie about the end of the world, he said, this isn't how it's going to happen. 
And he began to show me Daniel and Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation, and I cut my teeth on Bible prophecy. This was the, the early 80s. We were coming out of the Hal Lindsey era where prophecy was exploding. And by the way, there's been more teaching on Bible prophecy and the second coming of Christ since 1960 than in the history of the church. I believe God is proverb, you know, proverbially building an ark right in the middle of our world. Noah built a physical ark. I think God is building another ark and it's the explosion of Bible prophecy. Daniel said in the end, many would run to and fro. And you could take that like global travel will increase as it has. And knowledge would increase. And we could look at that and say, well, that's knowledge, like the knowledge we have of technology now, or the knowledge of Bible prophecy would increase. Either way, we're there, guys. And just like Noah built an ark, there is this explosion of Bible prophecy. And so I was fortunate to kind of catch that wave. And you know what the excitement was? The excitement wasn't that we were pinning the tail on the Antichrist or figuring out some scenario. What was exciting is we understood life was moving somewhere. The older you get, and some of you young people will feel like this as time goes on, you ever feel like a hamster on a wheel, right? Like it's spring and you gotta go out and get the mulch and you plant the flowers, and then you're gonna go down the shore and then the fall comes, you gotta rake the leaves. Christmas comes, you gotta put the lights up, you gotta take the lights down. And, and after a while, it's like, oh my gosh, how long are we gonna do all this? The exciting thing about Bible prophecy is we can look at the world and say, oh my gosh, with the Bible on one hand, newspaper on another hand, this world is moving somewhere. Zechariah said he would make Jerusalem a cup of trembling in the last days unto all the nations. In the late 19th century, it was a pile of rubble. No one cared about it. Today, we live in the realization, the miracle of Israel being back in the land. No nation has ever gone out of existence to come back into existence and speak the same language and have the same name. It's never happened. And for the 1948 years where they were not in the land, no geopolitical entity ever claimed that land. Ottoman Turks, the English, people presided over them and they were occupied, but there was never a physical entity or government in that land. And in 1967, when they had jurisdiction over Jerusalem, they fulfilled a prophecy of Jesus in Matthew 24 that Jerusalem would be trodden down by Gentiles until the time that the Gentiles would be fulfilled. You're watching a modern-day miracle. The book of Ephesians says we should walk circumspectly. It comes from the word circumference. In other words, we should live our lives looking at everything that's going on around us, realizing God is moving the world in a certain direction. In the last days, mockers will come, scoffers, skeptics. Where is the promise of his coming? Did Jesus even promise he was coming? The last days began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it takes us up and through the day of the Lord unto his second coming. Now, balance. I get it. Right? Martin Luther said if Jesus was coming tomorrow, he'd plant a garden. Why? Because he was living his life in expectancy anyway. But Peter says here there's something that should fire us up. There's something that should move us along when we realize that Jesus will come and bring ultimate justice to this planet. Now, these people were under persecution. I think we have it worse because we live in great prosperity. 
We're like the proverbial frog being boiled in water. We're like the virgins who ran out of oil. We're like the people who are caught up in the days of Noah with business as usual, right? We kind of get caught up like on the hamster wheel of the, this life is all there is. And yet the Bible says we should be vigilant, we should be sober, we should look with a worldview that, that God is doing something and the day of the Lord will come, it's coming. Now Peter answers the argument here, he says this is what they willfully forget. Verse five, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. This same heavens and earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Peter said here's the mistake they're making and they make it willfully. They look back and they think just by looking back they can figure out everything about today and where we're going. Peter said there's one problem, is that God created the world with the word of his power, let there be light, and there was light. God created the world, called it into existence. And then God stepped into human history and judged that world in Genesis 6 through 9. The problem with looking back is you think everything's continuous, it's all uniform. Peter said no, there was something cataclysmic that happened that altered the way we look at everything. Now in the coming weeks I'm gonna get into uniformitarianism, which by the way is only a theory, it's not fact. And I'm gonna show you by looking back it's changed everything, the fossil record, the geological strata, we'll get into all that stuff. But know this, God stepped into human history and he brought a deluge and he judged the earth. Now. The problem is, when the flood was over, God gave them the rainbow. Why did God give Noah the rainbow? Well, think about it. If you just came through a flood, and you're starting to rebuild your life, and you're building houses, and you're having kids, you know, what happens one day? You go out and barbecue, and all of a sudden, you feel drops of rain. Oh my gosh, here we go again. God's going to judge the earth. God said, look, so that never happens. I'm going to give you the rainbow. And every time you look at that bow, you'll know there'll be seed time and harvest, summer and winter, and you don't have to worry. By the way, in the Hebrew, that's a bow and arrow that we're familiar with, that's the bow. I find it fascinating the bow points upward towards God and not towards man, because God would pierce his son. But the same God who spoke the world into existence said it's reserved for judgment by fire. In fact, look at the terminology in verse 11. Since all these things will be dissolved, right? Verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will burn with fervent heat. You're looking at some form of nuclear reaction. But here, here's a point I want to make. We've got a nut in North Korea, correct? He's got his finger on the button. We've got a nut in Russia, finger on the button. We've got a guy in the White House. You can fill in the blanks, finger on the button, right? Israel, by the way, the story of Masada, where they committed suicide when the Romans came, you know what the line of the Jews is? Masada will never happen again. They will use nuclear arms. But when we look at what's going on here, we're not looking at some nut with their finger on the button, we're looking at Almighty God and what he said he would do. I have a 
uh, article here from The Economist, and it's way down here in my notes. It's called The Prince of Darkness, not The Prince, The Prince of Darkness. And it says, either Newton or Einstein were wrong, or there is something missing from the universe. The reason for this is that galaxies do not behave as the laws of gravity predict they should. Most galaxies rotate at a speed that should cause them to fly apart if all that holds their visible matter together is gravity. As physicists understand it, so either our understanding is flawed or there's more to the average galaxy that meets the eye. Most physicists tend the latter opinion. They think the universe is stuffed with invisible matter. So in other words, to get a nuclear explosion, what is holding the atom together has to be split. But they don't even understand why the atoms together. So they've come up with this term, atomic glue, which is ridiculous because it can't be proven. You and I know what's holding the atom together. Colossians says Jesus holds it together by the word of his power. The same word that brought the world into existence and is preserving the world for judgment is holding it together. When he lets go, the heavens will roll away as a scroll. You'll get fervent heat. God's got his finger on the button this time. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus came the first time at the exact right time. He will come again at the exact right time. Did Jesus predict he would come again? Absolutely. Over and over, not only did Jesus predict it, but others did. The night of his betrayal in John 14, he told his disciples, let your hearts not be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, listen, I will come again that where I am, you will always be with me. In Acts chapter one, the last time the disciples saw Jesus, they said, Lord, are you now gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? They're like, okay, we get it. We, we understand the cross paved the way. But are you now gonna restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said, it's not for you to know times or seasons. Those are in the Father's hands. Now, what's the one thing we wanna know about Bible prophecy? When's Jesus coming, right? You know, we'll get in a car and drive two miles if someone says they have inside knowledge on when Jesus is coming. Can I save you all the trouble? If someone asked you when Jesus is coming, what's your answer? No one knows. No one knows, right? However, however, he did give us precursors. Matthew 24, he said, wars, rumors of wars, false deception, pestilence, all these type of things. He said they would be like birth pangs. We have Israel in the land, we have an increase in technology which makes revelation when the two witnesses, the eyes of the world, seeing them possible. We have the possibility for a one-world economic system. You know, the retina scan, the technology, everything is speeding up. There are birth pains. But he said, that's not your concern. You shall receive power and you'll be my witnesses. There is a great harvest for you to reach. And then he ascends into heaven. Luke says there's two angels there. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who ascended into heaven will in like manner come down from heaven. Now Luke's the closest thing we have to a scientist. He was a medical doctor. The question we should all ask is, why did Jesus bodily ascend? 
every time they saw him after the resurrection, he just popped in the room, right? Remember the upper room? He just appeared, appeared on the Sea of Galilee. You know, he just, he, he was visible and invisible. What was he teaching them? He was saying, guys, whether you see me or not, I'm always there. This is the new relationship. Why this one time do they have to see him ascend? I think what Luke was showing us was that the ascension, I think it was metaphorical, I think it was in some ways for them to comprehend he was moving to another realm. Now skeptics come along and say, come on, Pastor Bob, you know, we know it doesn't work that way. How could he be ascending into heaven? Because we know we're on a globe and every way is up, so where is heaven? Well, heaven's another realm. And people talk about parallel universes and multiverses now. And Jesus said the kingdom of God's all around you. We have no idea. We're scratching the surface on some of this stuff. But think of what Luke was saying. He was ascending to another realm. It's like a king ascending a platform or a president ascending to an office. He was becoming the Lord of a realm. Peter on the day of Pentecost quotes Joel. He quotes Psalm 110, which is the most quoted Old Testament verse, where the Lord said to my Lord, this is David, sit at my right hand till I make thy enemies thy footstool. What he was showing is he was going to rule over that realm, and as he ascended, he would descend physically, and every eye would see him. John in Revelation said, behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And yet we have people even in the church today that said that Jesus metaphorically is coming through the church and the church is going to make the world better. And I couldn't disagree more. There will be a bodily, physical second coming of Jesus Christ. It is, it is the hope of the church. And we're mocked for it. People think we're small-minded. Now, Peter goes on to say they willfully forget this. They choose to take God out of the picture and look at life as it's always existed. And then he says they make another mistake. He said, beloved, verse 8, do not forget this one thing, that the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years one day. The Lord's not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but he's long-suffering not willing that any should perish. Why has it been 2,000 years? Because God is benevolent. It took Noah 120 years to build an ark. You know those doors were open every day? Any day in 120 years, people could have walked into that ark. And then one day God closed it and said, that's it. And I believe these are the days we're in. Again, more teaching on Bible prophecy. We have, we have internet, we have CDs. More people have heard. More people have lived post-Jesus' life than lived before him. And God is compelling them to come in. And many are. You know, the harvest is wonderful. And the reason why Jesus has delayed is because he's, he's long-suffering. God wants as many that will come to come. But how do we know it's true? How do we believe? Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, how do we get our minds around that you're coming again? And this is what I want to leave you with. Just turn back one page to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says in verse 18 that we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you, listen, 
the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was privileged to see some of the greatest spiritual things that any human being had ever seen. At Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In that pagan area with all false gods and statues, he said, you're the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you're, that's amazing. That revelation came from my Father in heaven, and you're the rock, and I'll build my church. And what a moment. He preached at Pentecost, and 3,000 got saved. What a moment. Jesus restored him on the Sea of Galilee. What a moment. He could have reached back for any of those moments. And instead, he said, we were on the holy mountain. He picks the transfiguration, and he said, we saw the coming of Jesus Christ. We saw the second coming. He saw a trailer. He saw a preview. He saw hot clips of Jesus coming again. And if you go back to Matthew 17 and read the verses before Matthew 17, Jesus said, there's some of you here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming. And Peter saw it with James and John on the mountain. He said, we were on the mountain, and Elijah and Moses appeared, and the voice came out of my son, heaven, this is my son, who I am well pleased to hear him. He said, we were on that holy mountain. Why did that move Peter in such an amazing way? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, he was moved because he said, Jesus' face shone like the sun. Here's an inner rabbi in Galilee, who they ate with every day, traveled with every day, the mystery of godliness, he's in human flesh. Isaiah said there's nothing about him that we would desire him. And all of a sudden there's a metamorphosis, there's a transfiguration where Jesus' face shines like the sun. It's what John saw in Revelation, it's the unveiling. And you know what Peter realized that day? That he's the Lord of another realm. He's the son of that universe. In Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light. Skeptics say, well, that can't be right because there was light on the first day and the sun and the moon don't come to the fourth day. Well, since when does God need a sun for light? Since he gave us the sun and the light, the lesser light and the, the, the greater light and the stars for times and seasons. God doesn't need a sun. Book of Revelation says in the New Jerusalem, uh, there's no darkness. God is the light. In this universe, Jesus is the radiance of the sun. And then he says this, his garments were whiter than any launderer could make them on earth. You know what Peter's saying he saw? Purity. He saw the ultimate purity of a human being or anything on this earth. Do you know that you and I intrinsically long for that and we don't know it? That's why we're so crushed when church leaders fall. Because even though we know church leaders are men or women, they're fallen, they're fragile, we are so longing for perfection in anything. We want something to be true, something to be real. We want someone that won't let us down, something we can hang our hats on. And Peter said, I saw it. He was so pure whiter than any launderer can make it, and the only one that can make anyone else pure. And then there was a beautiful thing. Moses and Elijah appear. And they begin to speak about his exodus. Moses is a pretty good guy to talk about an exodus to, right? Let all those Jews out of Egypt. 
Elijah had a pretty good exodus. He went into heaven on a chariot. One's the law, one's the prophets. It's all really cool, but you know what I love about it? Moses and Elijah were separated by centuries, and Jesus made them contemporaries. That's going to be the beauty of heaven. Again, it's a mind blower. Again, there's people that study time and the absence of time and multi-universes, and it's way above my pay grade. I'm just a generalist. But there are people that believe that when Moses gets to heaven and you get to heaven, you'll be arriving at the same time. How cool is that? And we're going to have that grand supper. That means when I get to heaven, my dad might be getting there, and we both, both might be 32 years old. People separated by centuries become contemporaries. Peter's looking at this, and he said, we were eyewitnesses, and we saw what the second coming will bring to this earth, and this is what we're longing for. And this is what you can hang your hat on. And he said, I want to stir you up with this. Because it doesn't look right now, and it looks bleak. But there's coming a day when God will step into human history, and he will make all things right. The number one question, and I used to question it all the time, that people have is, when is Jesus coming? Can I rephrase the question? When do you want Jesus to come? It's a better question. I didn't want him to come when I was 22. I wanted to get married, I wanted to have kids, I wanted to start a church, I wanted to see Eagles win a Super Bowl, right? <laughs> now that they won, we can go home. Yeah. <laughs> but see, then life deals you blows, right? You stand around too many grave sites, too many hospital beds. You look at too much injustice, too much corruption. And you kind of change your tune to Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, shut this down. Yeah, it might be good for me, but man, I've walked some slums. God, it ain't right. And you need to come. You need, you need to set these things right. Guys, it's what we believe. It's the greatest hope we have. Look, if we die and go to heaven, that's glorious. But if we hear that trumpet sound, man, that'll be glorious. There is one final period left in human history. Revelation 6 to 13, is gonna be ugly. Israel's gonna be deceived, a lot of bad things are gonna happen, and it will usher in the culmination of the ages. Look, the Bible says even, even creation's groaning. And let me tell you something, the line of these scoffers, it's changing. Stephen Hawking, who died about six weeks ago, you know what he said, this brilliant astrophysicist who denied God? He said Earth has about 100 years left. I'm gonna read you the quote next week. When I go to the movies, I sit through seven trailers. Half of them are about the end of the world. Now, it's all aliens are coming and, you know, all that nonsense. People know something's up. And by the way, we make fun of these global warming people. They're, they've caught on to something. Signs in the heavens and, and disturbances. Jesus talked about all this. They're not as stupid as we think. They've caught on to something. They just don't know the reality. And again, all this is not to make us haughty. It's to move us towards, hey, we got a calling in life. We need one eye on eternity because there's coming a day and we may be the generation where God steps into human history.